2 Corinthians chapter 8. Now, it begins in verse 1 with moreover, which means Paul is going to introduce now a new line of thought in the epistle. He's been talking to them really about his motives and ministry and some of his travels and misunderstandings. And now he's going to get to uh, something that he wants to address, address as a little more of a practical matter, which is this particular gift that he wrote to them about at the end of 1 Corinthians chapter 16, where there was in Jerusalem the church there, which was made up mostly of Jews, that was very poor. There was a famine in that area. They faced extreme persecution. And Paul was collecting a gift from Gentile churches to bring back to the church in Jerusalem as an offering not only of kindness, but, but a remarkable offering to this early Christian Jewish church of Gentile churches, mostly, in the name of Jesus Christ, sending back support to them. So this has been something that's on his mind. He wanted to address these other things more specifically. Now he's going to get to that really in these next two chapters. So verse one, he says, moreover, brethren, we make known to you the grace of God bestowed on the churches of Macedonia. Then in great trial of affliction, the abundance of their joy and in their deep poverty abounded in the riches of their liberality. For I bear witness that according to their ability, yes, and beyond their ability, they were freely willing, imploring us with much urgency that we would receive the gift and the fellowship of the ministering to the saints. And not only as we had hoped, but they first gave themselves to the Lord and then to us by the will of God. So Paul here begins to talk to them, and he's in Macedonia, you would remember. And he's saying, okay, this church, as he begins to talk about this gift here that he wants to send, these churches in Macedonia, they have joined in this gift. And not only did they join, he says, they're giving which was pretty incredible because, verse 2, they had a great trial of affliction, even with an abundance of joy, and deep poverty, and they gave liberally. So much so that Paul's going to say they gave beyond their measure, and they implored us to take the gift, which means maybe somebody was there saying, hey, guys, maybe... This is a little too much, like you got to take care. And they were saying, no, we want to be a part of this. So Paul is going to address what he calls from verse 1, the grace of God bestowed upon the churches of Macedonia. He's going to talk about giving in this whole section, and he's going to talk about it as a grace of God. That word grace there in the Greek, charis, is used seven times in this chapter. It's used more in the next chapter. And Paul is going to uh, describe for us a godly type of giving. And I think it's important for us, uh, if you're new here, and you just showed up tonight, and you're like, I knew these guys are going to be all about giving, like everybody else. Hang with us. We, this is not our typical theme. You know, this gets abused in churches, and uh, the, you know, the reality is there's a lot of money in the God racket, and there's a lot of people in religious world just for the money, and money gets abused in a lot of ways. Um, we teach you the scriptures, and we're just in this chapter tonight, so you'll see we'll get beyond it and keep coming, and you'll realize we're not just trying to hammer you for money. So, but we are going to learn a lot of things about what God would have us to see. So, I think that context is important. And Paul wants to, as he speaks to the Corinthians, encourage them and say, there's this church here in Macedonia, their great trial, their great poverty. And no doubt these believers in Macedonia who had afflictions and poverty, when they hear about other Christians who have afflictions and poverty, they know that experience. They want to give to relieve that. They, they want to minister to others who are in those situations as they are willing so much so that they give, Paul says, again in verse 3, according to their ability, yes, and beyond their ability, 
I like this little phrase, freely willing. That means there was, there was no pressure tactics from Paul. Paul told them about the opportunity, and they freely willing wanted to jump in and give. And Paul says it was like above what they should have given. So much so that he says, again, imploring us in verse 4, with much urgency that we would receive the gift. They, they didn't need to be cajoled or tricked into giving or wound up into giving. They were just given the opportunity and they said, we want to be a part of this. And Paul saw this as the grace of God in their lives. We want to minister to other saints in this position. They hear about those brothers. They need help. We can help them. We want to do that. And, uh, you know, the beautiful thing about that is certainly the fellowship, he says at the end there, verse 4, of ministering to the saints. They wanted to join in that. They wanted to be a part of it. I can say I'm not going to have a pitch at the end of this message. <laughs> this is, I'm going to do the opposite. Our church has been a blessing all around the world. Um, I was just thinking, even in the last like two years or so, we have given tens of thousands of dollars to believers in Ukraine, in Florida after Hurricane Ian, in Nigeria because of both purchasing a church and weather issues there, Peru, Guatemala, Maui with the fires, Israel in the middle of what's happening there, Acapulco most recently. This church has when they've heard of opportunities, so much so there's people now, when something happens somewhere, who start coming up to asking us, hey, when are we going to give to this thing? Right? What happens in Maui? People are like, hey, when are we going to help them out? When are we going to? And we're like, we haven't even talked to a church there we can send money to yet. Just, it's going to happen. But there's a grace of God in all that. And you guys have wonderfully been a part of it. And at, at the end, when we all stand in heaven, there's going to be believers all around the world that you guys blessed. Um, because God opened those doors for us. And you had this type of grace in your lives. So Paul says this is what's happening with these Macedonian churches. And then in verse 5, he gives us a little secret as to why. He says, not only as we had hoped. Paul said, I'm giving you the opportunity, and I hope they would have jumped into it. But he says, but they first gave themselves to the Lord and then to us by the will of God. They heard the gospel message. They gave themselves to the Lord. They were committed to him. And because they were committed to the Lord, not just uh, in that scenario, but first in priority in all things, because God had them, he had everything that was theirs. And that's how it always goes. Anybody that's going to give in a godly way, in, in a way that is full of grace, as Paul is talking about here, gives because they've first given themselves to the Lord. And anybody who starts to give that isn't first given over to the Lord is the first one who starts complaining, the first one who wants to shake off the cross, right? the first one who wants to start dividing things, is the first person who begins to get bitter or for a bag of silver decides to conveniently cut out. But when somebody's given to the Lord first, when he has their heart, then he has their whole life. And Paul says they committed themselves to the Lord. They heard the gospel. They gave their lives to him. And then they wanted to jump in. So the cost to them was not incidental. It was, in fact, the whole point. They, they weren't going to give to the Lord something cheap. Right? The, this Christmas season, there are some people where you're like, I just got to find something for them. And then there are other people you're like, I can't give them something cheap. Like your spouse, right? The idea is, no, there, it needs to be reflective of a particular heart you have towards this individual. David would say when he was giving an offering to the Lord, I will not give to the Lord that which costs me nothing. The cost was not incidental. I'm not giving God something cheap. That's not how this is going to go. Because he was given to the Lord. And these saints, they gave so freely and so graciously because they were given to the Lord. Now, 
Paul says this, so we urge Titus that as he had begun, so he would also complete this grace in you as well. This would be in reference to a future visit. Titus is most likely bringing this letter back to Corinth. And Paul says, Titus brought this up. I'm going to ask him to complete this. Verse 7, as you abound in everything, in faith, in speech, in knowledge, in all diligence, and in your love for us, see that you abound in this grace also. Paul had spoken about this church and abounding in a lot of gifts. In 1 Corinthians chapter 1, verse 5, he mentions the things that they abounded in. There was good things in the church in Corinth, even though there's a lot of weird things too. But they responded well, and they had a lot of gifts. But Paul says, I also know that you need to learn to abound in this too, in this gift of giving in a gracious way. You need to learn this. It needs to be a part of your life. It's going to be good for them as a church. Now, verse 8, he says, I speak not by commandment, but I am testing the sincerity of your love by the diligence of others. Paul, as an apostle, says, I'm not going to command you to give. I'm not going to use my influence as apostle to make that a demand. In fact, he's not going to need to at all, as he's going to explain in the following. But he is going to exhort them to realize your giving is a test of your sincerity and Christian love. I'm not going to command you to do it, but I'm going to put you in the context of your giving says something about you, about your sincerity of Christian life. And Christian love both to God and to others. Again, 1 John 3, 17 says, But whoever has this world's goods and sees his brother in need and shuts up his heart from him, how does the love of God abide in him? And now here's why Paul, I think, didn't need to command them. Verse 9, he says, For you know the grace of our Lord Jesus Christ, that though he was rich, yet for your sakes he became poor that you through his poverty might be rich. Paul says Jesus made giving grace abundantly clear in his own life. The example that you need, you can see, notice, in our Lord. Now, a lot of commentators begin doctrinal kind of dissertations on what type of riches Christ had, what does that mean, the exact riches aren't the whole point here. The whole point here is the Holy Spirit is inspiring a moral example for us to look at Jesus Christ, to see who he is. So many of, even some of the most beautiful passages in the scriptures that talk about Jesus Christ, Philippians 2, 1 Peter 2, they're given as moral examples you can work doctrinal things off of them, but that's not the context of them. The context of them is look at Jesus Christ. Let this mind be in you, which was also in him. Paul's talking about giving. He says, you already know who Jesus is. What a giving life looks like. This is who he is. The Lord Jesus Christ became poor that's the only time that word there in the Greek is used in the Bible, and it refers literally to being a beggar or a pauper. Jesus became a beggar. The heir of all things becomes the owner of almost nothing. Living with the clothes on his back has to borrow a coin to give an illustration, and he lives a large part of his life on the hospitality of others. This is the one we're looking at. This is the center of Paul's appeal here to godly giving, the life and death and resurrection of the Lord Jesus Christ. It's not videos with sad faces on them, right? SPCA, all the sad dogs and cats and things with sad music in the background working people to give, urgent appeals of need. Some people condemn with stories that these things failed because there wasn't enough funds in the world and threats of communism. And, you know, there's whole studies you can pay 
people is big money in data studies, sociological studies. These people in these areas are filled with singles moms, so this story goes over well. This is how you can win the most. People pay money for donor lists. You give somewhere, you get up on a list. There's a lot of money in the money game. Paul doesn't revert to any of that stuff. When he talks about godly giving, he says, look at our master. He calls him the Lord Jesus Christ. This one is our Lord. This is the Lord. I want you to see your Savior, Jesus. I want you to see your anointed one, Christ, the Messiah. You know how he became poor so that we might become rich through his poverty. He took this on willingly. And Paul says, that's the grace of our Lord Jesus Christ. Look at the grace working in that way. Again, the Greek word for grace is first used in Greek literature in considering contrast between high things and low things, not just biblical literature, outside Greek literature. So it was used when they would contrast things like strength and weakness or beauty and ugliness or things that are right or things that are wrong, right? High things versus low things. And slowly in their own literature, it took on a different type of meaning, which related more to the desire to impart those high things to someone else. And then the Holy Spirit, inspiring men to write a scripture, particularly this guy Paul, took this Greek word grace, Greece, and said, here's how you're going to use it now. You're going to give it the honor of embodying the desire of God Almighty to impart high things to lowly people. Paul just says, you know the grace of our Lord Jesus Christ. We want to talk about giving? Let's talk about Jesus. Let's talk about that type of giving. Look at his life. Certainly, Jesus gave money, but Jesus gave a lot more than that. Certainly, material things are going to be a context here, but Paul's talking about a giving life, and the material things go when you've given yourself to the Lord first. And the reality is a lot a lot of us would rather sponsor three kids than go on the junior high retreat. How much? I'll pay you 500 not to go, right? Sometimes living is a lot harder than giving. And the, the life here is what's put in front of us. And this is the spirit that he extends to us. So giving. Do you need grace to give? Do you need grace for life? Well, you look at him and ask. Nobody's given like him. It's not just that he did it. it. It's who he is. This is the grace of our Lord Jesus Christ. And the Macedonians had picked up that spirit. So Paul says in 10, and in this I give advice. Again, I'm not going to command you, but you should listen to me here. It is to your advantage not only to be doing what you began and were desiring to do a year ago, but now you also must complete the doing of it, that as there was a readiness to desire it, so there may also be a completion out of what you have. For if there is first a willing mind, it is accepted according to what one has and not according to what he does not have. So this church had pledged over a year ago, yeah, we'll be a part of that. Paul hadn't been there. He had written and said, take that offering, get it together. When I come, I want it to be ready. So they had expressed their willingness. But Paul says, it's important for you to follow through now. Doing good in this way is good for them, Paul knows. It's important for you to follow through, not just have good intentions, but to do what you said. James 4.17 says this, Therefore, to him who knows to do good and does not do it, to him it is sin. So, it, there wasn't new pressure here. Paul said, you're already willing to do this. Follow through on it. And if there's a willing mind, God accepts, notice verse 12, what one has and not according to what one does not have. How much are they to give according to what one has? That's all. 
There's no crazy pressure here. Paul just says, what you have, give that. There's a, um, F.W. Bourne tells a story about a guy named David Glenn Denning that I always think about in one of his pastorships. And uh, a guy worked in the mill. He didn't have a great education. Borum actually did a lot of his correspondence for him. So the guy would speak, and he would write it down and help him send out letters places. And he said he realized this guy's getting correspondence from all over the world. So he asked him, like, what are you, like, why are you getting all these letters from all over the world? And what he found out was this guy said, look, I'm a mill hand, and I hear these stories about, you know, like an orphanage in India or this miss- missionary out there in Africa. And he's like, I know I can't go to Africa. And I know I can't go to India. But he said, I can do what I do. So he said, on, on Monday, I work an extra hour for the, the orphans in India. And on Tuesday, I work an extra hour for... This is a missionary in Africa. And on Wednesday, and the guy just basically took every day of the week and worked extra time and then saved up that money. And every month at the end, he would send that money to one of these other places. And he said the guy had touched people all over the world just because he gave what he had. That was it. What he had. According to what the Lord had given him, godly man here. Notice, There is no command of tithing here. Paul doesn't say, give me the 10% or you rob God, which is a lot of messages out there. There's no command to tithe in the New Testament. It's fine as a general rule if you want to do that, but it shouldn't be mechanical. Certainly there's no coercive faith giving here where some people are like, you should give what you don't own in faith. Give us $5,000 you don't have because then God will give it to you. There's none of that here. It's according to what you have. And that's out there. And it's sad because people who are good-natured and not discerning get sucked into these things. You give according to what you have, and it is freeing. As God has prospered you, Paul would say in 1 Corinthians 16. So, I mean, you know, tithing is great. Like I said, it's nice as a general rule. But it can't be mechanical like it never changes. If you, if you have a really hard year, you're going to give less so that you can live. And if somebody here wins a billion dollars in the lottery, you better not give us 10%. It better be like half, right? Because if you can't live all $500 million, you have a problem. So, you know, it doesn't have to be us to give it to the Lord, wherever uh, the Lord leads you in that. But to the work of the Lord, you understand? Though hopefully some of that comes to us. So, the... The reality is, this, this is really very freeing. God knows what we have. And he just says, there's no coerciveness here. There's no stress here. God knows if your heart longs to give more, but you don't have more. And he, so he's okay with that. And he also knows, I'm not responsible for what I don't have. And God, I would, I would give you that $500 million. Well, you don't have it, so don't worry about it. It's fine, but give him the five bucks you do have then. You understand? It's just very freeing here. So the, the reality is, though, Paul says this is, this is for your advantage because he knows if I'm not a giving person with wherever I am, with whatever I have, then what am I? If, if this isn't a grace that's being worked in our lives as believers, then what exactly are we doing? And the answer is then we're living for ourselves or for the world or in covetousness. It's a very real danger for us, particularly here in America, where we have so many blessings. John Piper in his book, A Hunger for God, says this. The greatest enemy of our hunger for God is not poison, but apple pie. It is not the banquet of the wicked that dulls our appetite for heaven, but endless nibbling at the table of the world. It is not the X-rated video, but the primetime dribble of triviality we drink in every night. For all the ill that Satan can do, when God describes what keeps us from the banquet table of his love, it's a piece of land, a yoke of oxen, and a wife. The greatest adversary of love to God is not his enemies, but his gifts. And the most deadly appetites are not for the poison of evil, 
but for the simple pleasures of earth. For when these replace an appetite for God himself, the idolatry is scarcely recognizable and almost incurable. Jesus said some people hear the word of God and desire for God is awakened in their hearts. But then as they go on their way, they are choked by the cares and riches and pleasures of life. In another place, he said, the desires for other things enter in and choke the word, and it proves unfruitful. The pleasures of life and the desires for other things, these are not evil in themselves. These are not vices. These are the gifts of God. They are your basic meat and potatoes and coffee and gardening and reading and decorating and traveling and investing and TV watching and internet surfing and shopping and exercising and collecting and talking. All of them can become deadly substitutes for God. Paul says, this grace is good for you. Listen to my advice. It's advantageous, it's advantageous for you to jump into this. As you're willing and able, as God has allowed you, you're not responsible for what you can't give. You don't have to worry about that. It's not competing here. God knows where you're at, and he'll supply. Verse 13, Paul wants to throw this in there. For I do not mean that others should be eased and you burdened. Paul doesn't say, I want you to give in a really sacrificial way so that they have it easy and now you struggle. Right? Sometimes we get worried about that. That's not what he's saying. He says, but an equality that now at this time your abundance may supply their lack and their abundance also may supply your lack, that there may be equality. As it is written, he quotes from Exodus here, he who gathered much has nothing left over and he who gathered little had no lack. Paul, this isn't a form of Christian communism. Paul is saying, in fact, he says the opposite right off the bat. He's saying, look, I'm giving you this example of sacrificial giving. I don't want you to give so much so that now you're burdened and like they're fine living in luxury or something. We don't want an abuse. Certainly, Second Thessalonians chapter 3, verses 10 through 12 balances this. Paul tells somebody, if you don't work, you don't eat, and you're worse than an infidel. So he doesn't mean just living off of others' giving. That's condemned in the Bible. What he is saying here is when people have a genuine need— and we have the ability to help, we should do that as believers. Particularly for the body of Christ, meeting the necessity of these believers in actual need, out of your abundance, God has given you extra so that you can care and help and give and be his minister. Scriptures make an emphasis of this. Galatians 6.10 says, Therefore, as we have opportunity, let us do good to all, especially to those who are of the household of faith. I should especially care if it's another believer who needs help, who has a real need. And he ends this section by quoting, we'll call it the manna principle from Exodus 16, 18, where it's speaking about manna. And when, when God said, go out and collect what you need, everyone according to their families, you got 14 families, you have to collect more manna than other people. And when people collected what they were supposed to, they all had enough. But if they tried to hoard it, it all rotted, became stinking and filled with worms. He said, you collect what you need and then you share the rest. That's the whole point. And everybody had what they needed. And Paul basically references that and says, that's still how it should be. Now, 16, he says this, a little more practical stuff. But thanks be to God who puts the same earnest care for you into the heart of Titus. For he not only accepted the exhortation, but being more diligent, he went to you of his own accord. And we have sent with him the brother whose praise is in the gospel throughout all the churches. And not only that, but who also is chosen by the churches to travel with us with this gift which is administered by us to the glory of the Lord himself, and show your ready mind, verse 20, avoiding this, that anyone should blame us in this lavish gift, which is administered by us, providing honorable things, not only in the sight of the Lord, but also in the sight of men. So here, Paul says, look, I'm sending Titus to you again, not because he has to, he's going willingly himself. Titus wants to do this, though he agreed to go. And he's going... Again, most likely carrying this epistle with them. 
and he's going to go with another brother. We're not told who. Commentators make a lot of guesses. We don't know who it is here. But we know that brother, he says, has praise in the gospel throughout all the churches. So it's a guy who is known for being trustworthy and blameless. And he says, I'm going to send Titus and this guy, and we're going to see somebody else. Because the gift was a big gift, and particularly in that day, you couldn't just transfer money digitally. You had to carry it, and it was dangerous. And they, Paul says, I wanted to make sure in verse 20 that anyone should blame us in this lavish gift. These people have given so freely, we want accountability here. And Paul is being wise with the money. I think it's important. Uh, you know, we try our best to be wise with the funds here. We have ushers and multiple people that get the offering and carry it and count it. We have great people that work in finance, both the church and the school, men and women that cover these things. We have a purchase order system. We can see where money's going. We do our best to be accountable here with funds. Um, oh, this is really random, but I'll just say this to you. Now you're going to tune in. This has literally just happened. Neither my father nor myself have social media. So you will never get a Facebook request from us asking for money. Can I just say that? All right. I just got to put, because this is happening and has happened and just continues to happen. Me and my father will not ask you for Amazon gift cards through Facebook. Okay. So you, we don't have social media and we will not. Uh, so just know it's not actually us. It's some random person who made that up. Okay. So I just got to throw that out there. The, the Paul wants these things to be, there should be accountability. And, you know, sadly, there's never going to be perfection. Even though you have accountability, people have all different types of systems, both moral accountability and fiscal accountability. There's always people who are going to try their best to work around those things and try to steal. And it comes out, there's scandals here and there. It doesn't matter, Catholic church, Protestant church, where money's involved, there's, there's going to be issues. I think it's interesting Jesus gave Judas the money bag. And he knew that he was a thief, John tells us, from the beginning. On purpose, Jesus allowed Judas to carry the money bag. And I think he did that because he knew for all church history, there was going to be scandals around money. Every single church age, there would be their own versions of it. And I think he wanted to let everybody know, I'm still in charge. It's still my money. It isn't that we shouldn't be accountable or smart. That's what Paul's saying here. But I think it's very interesting when we see those scandals, the work of the enemy, pop out in the church around finances, we should just realize Jesus knew this was going to happen from the beginning. We shouldn't be shocked. He's still in control. He knows where every single one of his pennies are going to, you know. He says in Haggai, the silver is mine, the gold is mine. He owns it all, and he's able to provide for what he needs. So sometimes things happen outside of our ability to see, as it did with the disciples. But it's never outside of his ability. He's got it under control. But I'm thankful for the faithful people we have around, and we try our best to be accountable, as Paul is doing here. Now, 22... He said, and we have sent them with our brother, whom we have often proved diligent in many things, but now much more diligent because of the great confidence which we have in you. If anyone inquire, inquires about Titus, he's my partner and fellow worker concerning you. Or if our brethren are inquired about, there are messengers, the word is actually apostles sent ones, of the churches to the glory of Christ. Therefore show to them and before the churches the proof of your love and are boasting on your behalf. So he says, I'm sending this other guy too. So Titus and at least two more are going to be a part of this before Paul shows up. And he says, I want you guys to accept them. They're trustworthy individuals, which was important for them to know, handing over money. You should do your best to realize what you're giving your money to in the work of the Lord, that those people are trustworthy. So verse 1, chapter 9. Now concerning the ministering to the saints, it is superfluous for me to write to you. The idea being is, Paul says, I don't, I don't really need to make any further appeals for you to give. He already knows they're going to give. 
So he's just going to speak to or appeal to their state of heart and their preparedness instead. He says this, For I know your willingness, about which I boast of you to the Macedonians and Achaia, was ready a year ago. And your zeal has stirred up the majority. He said, look, you guys were ready to do this a long time ago, and I boasted about you guys, that you were so ready to give. Verse 3. Yet I have sent the brethren, lest our boasting of you should be in vain in this respect, that as I said, you may be ready, lest if some Macedonians come with me and find you unprepared, we, not to mention you, should be ashamed of this confident boasting. Therefore, I thought it necessary to exhort the brethren to go to you ahead of time and prepare your generous gift beforehand, which you had previously promised, that it may be ready as a matter of generosity and not as grudging obligation. So very interesting. What Paul says here is basically, look, hey, I told all these Macedonians about you. I'm going to be coming to you. And Paul would very often travel with new believers. He would take some people with him, young men that were growing in ministry. And he says, I want you to have that gift prepared because I've been boasting about how you guys have been ready for a year. And if I show up from Macedonia with a bunch of Macedonians and you guys aren't ready to give, (laughs) it's going to look bad for you and for me. So he wants them to follow through. He had already told them in 1 Corinthians, I don't want... He ends by saying, grudging obligation. I don't want any collections taken when I'm there. I think this is very unique of Paul, right? And in church world today, people bring in big money speakers for collections. The guy or the lady is used because they know if they have that person there, they'll get more money. Paul literally says, I don't want to do that. I don't want there to be a collection when I show up. I don't want a single bit of grudging obligation. I want the total collection made by the time I arrive. Because I don't, I don't want to be used in that way or have it out of grudging obligation because, you know, the Apostle Paul's holding the bucket in my face, so I got to get money. It's the Apostle Paul. I can't say no to him. So... Very interesting what Paul is encouraging here. Follow through, have it ready. He doesn't want any of this grudging obligation when he shows up, and it wouldn't be an encouragement to those from Macedonia if he did, and they weren't ready. Now, verse 6. But I say this. Instead, he wants them to think about this clear biblical principle. He who sows sparingly will also reap sparingly, and he who sows bountifully will also reap bountifully. Now, the context here is material things, but the same biblical principles used in regard to giving, prayer, mercy, service, various things through the scripture. So it's always both material and spiritual. The two are always tied. To state it simply, he's saying this, there's always going to be a direct proportional relation, a correlation between all our sowing and reaping, whether material or spiritual. There's always going to be a direct correlation. So if you sow sparingly, you will reap sparingly. If you only sow a little bit of seed, you only get a little bit of harvest. If you sow bountifully, then you will reap bountifully. And Paul wants them to recognize that's a spiritual law. It's throughout the word of God. I could multiply verses, but the Old Testament teaches it. Proverbs 11, 24, and 25 say, There is one who scatters, yet increases more. And there's one who withholds more than is right, but lends to poverty. The generous soul will be made rich, and he who waters will also be watered himself. Jesus would teach, Matthew 10, 41 and 42, He who receives a prophet in the name of a prophet shall receive a prophet's reward. He who receives a righteous man in the name of a righteous man shall receive a righteous man's reward. He who gives one of these little ones only a cup of cold water in the name of a disciple, assuredly I say to you, he shall by no means lose his reward. Again, in Luke 6, Jesus would teach, Give and it will be given to you good measure, pressed down, shaken together, and running over will be put in your bosom. For with the same measure that you use, it will be measured back to you. And the Apostle Paul would teach in Galatians, 
chapter 6, verse 8, He who sows to his flesh will of the flesh reap corruption, but he who sows to the Spirit will of the Spirit reap everlasting life. What are we sowing? Materially, spiritually, with our lives, what are we sowing into? Tonight you're sowing to the Spirit. You're here at church. Hopefully you're here for the right reasons. You're going to stand in eternity one day and you're going to see the full effect of that. It's going to be a seed sown in the right place. What are we sowing to? The spirit or to the flesh? Paul's saying, this is a rule. If you sow sparingly, you will reap sparingly. He who sows bountifully will also reap bountifully. And again, it's, it's often not just in like financial measure, but in proportion. Jesus said the widow who gave the two mites, she gave more than they all. Because my giving is related not just to what I give, but to what I have left. And she sowed bountifully because it was everything she had. Just according to what we have. That's how it's measured out. I don't need added pressure to like, well, I'll give more once I make more money. No, God's not saying that. Saying, where are you? What do you have? We can all sow either sparingly or bountifully with what we have. Right where he has us. With our lives, our time, our funds, whatever is involved there. Now, why is this important? Verse 7, so that each one give as he purposes in his heart, not grudgingly or of necessity. For God loves a cheerful giver. And God is able to make all grace abound toward you, that you always having all sufficiency in all things may have an abundance for every good work. As it is written, he quotes from Psalm 112, verse 9 here. He has dispersed abroad. He has given to the poor. His righteousness endures forever. Paul says, give as you purpose in your heart. God loves a cheerful giver. The word is hilarious, that's the idea, but the point is you want to actually do it. If you're like, oh man, I'm all guilty about this, then don't don't give. (laughs) Give what you're happy to give. Have a gracious heart toward the Lord. God loves a cheerful giver because God is a cheerful giver. It is who he is. And Paul tries to say Something about what type of giver God is there in verse 8. And he uses a whole lot of description. God is able to make all grace abound toward you. That you always having all sufficiency in all things may have an abundance for every good work. It's hard to describe what type of giver God is. But Paul says, listen, you... He uses abundance, all, all, all things. You notice that. He's, he just realizes it's really big. And you and I have no conception of the deep reservoir of grace and resource that God is. In fact, we take it for granted. He's so deep and so giving that we live on an everyday basis, taking for granted how he daily loads us with benefits. In just think of in the city of Philadelphia, how many, you know, spigots, water taps, whatever you want to call them, faucets, there are literally in the city of Philadelphia running, being used like every single day. And we just go and use it and we never think about the reservoir that is needed to make that happen. To cleanse, to give water, to cook, to give life. Like we never think about that at all. Now, if All the water in the city of Philadelphia shut down for a week. It would be pandemonium. It would would get pretty crazy real fast. But we just take it for granted that we got this resource that we can count on. And we just go about our day doing it. And God, who gives life torrents of living water from our innermost being, is a resource that just continues to give the water of life. Again, that is cleansing, watering, satisfying thirst, enabling life, joy, 
that provides us with a, a contentment that we can literally be almost ignorant about? What if we couldn't count on that? Or we were outside of that? Right? John, the apostle, was saying, John 1, 16, of his fullness we have all received, and grace for grace. He just keeps having more. Fullness and giving grace to meet our needs, notice, graciously, abundantly, and sufficiently, Paul says in that verse. In all things, all things good, all things bad, all things joyful, all things sorrowful, all things sacred, all things secular, physical, mental, emotional, spiritual. God has the resources of grace to meet all of those needs. And they're so deep that our appropriation, our asking of those things, looks really shallow. Like, there's not something hard for God. We're not asking something so deep that this would be really difficult for him to give to us or to meet our need. God the Father, God the Son, God the Holy Spirit, God is the most giving being in existence. And that's why Jesus, Paul tells us in Acts 20, commonly said, it is better to give than to receive. Who could actually tell us that? You know, a lot of people, if a human being told us that, we probably wouldn't even believe them. Who else would know that? Because no one has ever given more than he has, the pauper from Nazareth or the pauper from heaven. Nobody's ever given life like that. Nobody's ever taken a loss like that. Nobody's ever humbled themselves like that. Nobody's ever overcome so much evil with so much good like that. Nobody's ever extended so much high and lofty things to those who are low and unworthy like that. Nobody's ever given the way he has given. There will never be a giver equal to him. He will not be outdone. But he does invite us to give like him. We will never give equal to him, not even close. But he does say, you can give like me. I will give you the grace to be a godly giver like me. Like me. Who he is. Again, Paul quotes from Psalm 112.9 to sum up what he's been saying. I think it's important that we all know God is more ready to give than we are to receive. He was giving before we ever asked anything. His son was given before the foundation of the world. His provision has been prepared for a long time. He's not scrambling to make it all happen. He is sufficient to make all grace abound towards us, always having all sufficiency in all things, that we can have an abundance for every good word, not just enough, God isn't stingy about it. God will provide an abundance for every good work. He's not going to provide you for evil things or to be worldly because then he'd be complicit in sin. But he will provide more than you could imagine for every good work. That's who he is. That's what Paul describes and wants them to see. Now, verse 10 May he who supplies seed to the sower and bread for food supply and multiply the seed that you have sown and increase the fruits of your righteousness while you are enriched in everything for all liberality, which causes thanksgiving through us to God. When it comes to giving, Paul says, God will provide both the grace to give and the means to give. 
God, he says, he provides seed for the sower. The sower can't just sow if he doesn't have any seed. He said, God even gives the seed to the sower. He, he will not only give you the grace to be a giving person like him, he will provide you the means of what you need to give. If you're like, Lord, I need to give. And I'm not just talking material things. Most of my begging in that realm does not come in the material. It's, Lord, I need to give something else of myself. And he can provide that, the means. He provides as the original supplier, the very first provider, the original source of all things. Untapped. Everything in existence coming from him. Paul says, he can multiply your supply, increase the fruits of your righteousness. The great giver of all things wants to disperse his goodness abroad. And you know what he does? He looks for liberal hearts to share his supplies with. He's trying to get stuff out. But he doesn't want to filter it to somebody who's just going to eat it all themselves. He's filtering it to somebody who's going to be a part of his work that's willing to share. And I have no doubt, again, that God has opened so many doors for our church because we will share. He's allowed us to minister to, to the body of Christ all over America and all over the world. And it's not just us, other, other churches and places as well, because they don't just keep it for themselves or misappropriate it. They use it for his purposes. And you know what he does? He continues to supply. He continues to give then. He adds to the seed. And what happens in the end? Then God is thanked for the gifts, which causes thanksgiving through us to God. We thank God and those who receive thank the Lord. Now, 12 through 15, he closes kind of summing up the Lord's portion in all this. Verse 12, for the administration of this service not only supplies the needs of the saints, but also is abounding through many to the thanksgiving of God. For while through the proof of this ministry they glorify God for the obedience of your confession to the gospel of Christ and for your liberal sharing with them and all men. And by their prayer for you who long for you because of the exceeding grace of God in you. So you notice quickly in this portion, God gets his portion. Verse 12, God is thanked. Verse 13, God is glorified. And verse 14, God is petitioned. Then in verse 12, the saints' needs are met. Fellowship is enriched in verse 13. And prayers are born in verse 14. Right? This, this godly, a godly, gracious type of giving, not the worldly pounding of people or the worldly trying to use funds for covetous reasons, or the worldly, stingy kind of keeping myself and my all that is mine materially to myself, those are all the opposite of what we're talking about here. The grace that we see in the Lord Jesus Christ, who has richly given of himself and what he had to enrich others, and who also becomes the one who has the name above every name, and who is glorified above everyone else, is the example that he gives to us. And he says, the blessing goes all around. God is honored when, when he rightly blesses us and we respond and become a part of his works. And the body of Christ is built up. Paul says, you become an administration and a part of this in this administration and, and the things we're organizing here. You get to jump in and be a part of that happening. That's why he says it's good for you. It's advantageous for you. Doing good is good for you. So follow through on this, guys. Understand this. I want you to understand the heart behind it. Then to sum it all up in verse 15, he says, thanks be to God. For his indescribable, your Bible may say, unspeakable gift. Again, Paul ends the section praising God, the great giver who made all of this possible. There's really only one indescribable gift. Some people say 
Uh, is he talking about just this particular gift to the Corinthians here? He never uses this type of language for a particular monetary gift. This is about Jesus Christ, who he made the center of this gift. And he's the one who is indescribable. The Greek word there, again, is a unique one. It's used only here, and it means something that cannot be expounded in full. You can never totally say what this is. We thank God for his indescribable gift. To describe something, you need thought, you need language, and you need voice. You need thought because you have to comprehend something. If you can't comprehend it, you cannot explain it to anyone. Hence, I can no longer help my sixth grade daughter with her math homework. I'm like, sorry, square roots, ask your teacher. I don't remember anymore, you know? I no longer comprehend that, so now somebody else has to help you with that. You need thought. You need language. You need the words to be able to rightly explain what it is. We can make a lot of jokes about men and women right here, trying to say the same thing in different ways, but the right words said the right way go a long way in describing something. It is a gift. Some people have it. God extends that. You also need voice. You have to say it audibly. But, you know, this unique thing happens, funny enough, when we come to the really important things in life, the things that are the deepest. It's hard to think about. It's hard to find the right words. It's hard to say. If they were born again, it tells a story about a pastor who had been in one place for over 50 years, and they had a retirement kind of party for him. And they said they all asked him to come up and speak. He was there. And he said he got up, and he just stood there, could tell trying to compose himself and he just shook his head and walked down and they kind of continued for a little and then he got up and tried again and couldn't couldn't say anything didn't have any words couldn't speak he said all he says is it's no good I can't do it and he said he didn't need to say anything for us in that moment in fact in those moments, if you get up and you're really eloquent, you begin to mistrust that person. Interesting that the incarnation solves our lack of thought and language and voice. That the God I could never comprehend or rightly describe in words or audibly even speak about, I learn a whole lot more about through this gift of Jesus Christ, right? In a human being, it's the look of the face, the flush in the face, the trembling voice, the quivering lip, the flash in the eye. It all begins to tell me a whole lot more than maybe just the words they could say or not say. Jesus Christ embodies something indescribable. It's a gift given that the world could never fully expound on. We just read in the Gospel of John, he said, if I told you everything I saw, if I wrote it in books, all the books in the world couldn't contain it. Not because he could comprehend it, but because in that realization that what is indescribable has been embodied for us. We step to the edge of eternity in that moment. Because Paul says that in the ages to come, he's going to show the exceeding riches of his grace in kindness toward us through Jesus Christ. It's going to take the rest of eternity to get to just begin to learn how indescribable this gift of Jesus Christ actually is. That's the type of giver that he is. And Paul says, 
Thanks be to God for his indescribable gift. Let's stand. Let's pray. Lord Jesus, we do thank you for who you are, for what you are, for what you show us about the Father, that we can see you and see him. Thank you for what we can comprehend in you, in your words, in the gift that you've given us through yourself and through your Holy Spirit. So, Lord Jesus, I just pray that you would, for myself, for my brothers and sisters here, allow us to be more like you. Allow us, in your grace, to receive of your grace in greater measure, to know it, and to be conduits of it to those around us for your glory and for your pleasure. Pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen.